Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interviewed Jaideep Danoa about his experience with the micromobility industry across Asia and the Middle East. He is an absolute OG of the space and a wonderful guy to boot. We talk about his experiences with Grab and Cirque and now his efforts with Phoenix, including about Turkey, which is a market I didn't know much about, but I'm going to be watching with a lot of interest from here on out. It's a great conversation and I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. In the meantime, I want to thank our sponsor for the episode, Ubeek. Ubeek makes shared micromobility profitable. Most shared mobility businesses are not profitable, as 60-80% to 80% of the demand is not met. Ubeek fixes that by automating the rebalancing operations to ensure vehicles are in the right place at the right time to meet demand. This enables operators to increase revenue by 20% within 8 weeks while also decreasing operational costs. How do they do it? Automated rebalancing and charging as a service. Ensuring EV fleets remain charged is a major challenge for shared micromobility, and if not managed effectively, it can be a huge drag on revenues. Ubeek's charging as service gives you a head start by automating the charging process. Its predictive engine combines with crowdsourced operational execution to provide an easily scalable charging operation. This leads to efficient charging processes that will have a major impact on revenue. The best part? It's plug and play, and you can get started right away. Get in touch to find out more by clicking the show notes. For those of you who couldn't make it, I am stoked to report that Micromobility America was a giant hit. Thank you so much for all the lovely and kind messages that we've had. It certainly was an event that I would have loved to have been at. (laughs) Unfortunately, I also was stuck here in New Zealand and couldn't make it up, but I am really looking forward at being at the next one. Congratulations to Horace, Luke, James, Kat, and the rest of the team for a job well done. And with that, here's Jadeep. Let's go. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today Jadeep Danoa. How are you today, Jadeep? Excellent. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Really big supporter. I'm really excited to tell the story because I think you talk about stuff that I think we, one, haven't covered on the show, and two, I don't think get anywhere near enough coverage, which is the world of micromobility in the Middle East and the work that you've done in Asia. I think in general, like you're one of these people who have been around for a long time and have seen how the industry has developed. And I always think those are interesting conversations. So look, I I feel like the best way for us to, to start this is just to go back to, you know, what's your background? Where did you where did you come from? How did you end up in micro in the first place? Yeah, so I guess I've been working in mobility for a while. Started with Kareem in 2016. They were still, you know, experiencing their, their growth trajectory and I was, I was leading growth and strategy there. And I moved actually from Kareem to Grab in 2017. Mm-hmm. Grab, I guess, and Kareem have a lot of similarities, you know, operating in this diverse, fragmented, collection of markets and I guess uh, Grab was a little farther along they had started to diversify beyond right hailing and so I was part of their ventures team helping drive that vertical expansion and of course you know bike sharing was all the craze in 2017 in China right on Grab's doorstep mm-hmm. so little did I know from like my first week on the job that that would become my core focus 
and uh, <laughs> been working on for the last five years. So I yeah but, yeah blame it all on Grab. Totally, totally. And just for context as well, because I, I know what Kareem is, but I'm not entirely sure that everybody else does. But Kareem was the local regional, what well, was the regional ride sharing company that was competing in the Middle East, started in Dubai in 2016, a big deal. Finally, we don't have to deal with just the taxis. It was great. So like the, I feel, you know, when we've talked about this in the past and I think, you know, that is such a pivotal time that, that those early days of micromobility in Asia, the Chinese bike share boom was really, you know, it laid the seeds, I think, of, of all of the work that's come into the shared micromobility market since, even though that model didn't work. And I'd love you to just sort of expand a little bit on what did you see? I mean, what was the... What were the dynamics in that market? What was crazy about it? What was exciting? What were the insights that you had from you when you were in Grab working on that? I mean, to be honest, I was quite a skeptic about this whole micromobility concept when I heard about you know hundreds of millions of dollars going into bicycles. It took a bit of a mental leap to, I guess, figure out you know what is disruptive about micromobility versus you know what I'd been focusing on, which was ride hailing and you know cars. Of course, it attacks the the fundamental cost structure where you have a vehicle that's much smaller, you know, right size for the right ride, as you guys put it, you know, it's already self-driving, right? Do you drive yourself? And so, you know, the cost structure is just very different from a 2000 kg or one ton, you know, steel uh, vehicle with a private chauffeur moving you around. And I guess what was ex- like, what, what drew a lot of attention to the space in China, especially was the dramatic adoption the volumes mm. that you know these companies were seeing in terms of utilization you know were really incredible i mean while i was at grab i remember hearing you know bike sharing doing you know, 100 million rides a day in china yeah right which was five times more than dd dd of course was doing more rides than uber was doing in the rest of the world combined right just yes, to show I you know. it's crazy crazy times yeah the level of scale. And I guess when you think about it, I mean, the price point, you know, it's a low ticket transaction, so very accessible to everyone, right? And high frequency because we're all moving every day and most of us are in cities and, you know, we're going short distances in cities. So so that's what initially spurred the interest in micromobility and bike sharing. Of course, we were all learning, you know, what does it take to operate this sort of business? I think we didn't understand, you know, the core drivers of bike sharing. I mean, it's like rides per day, cost of the bike, it's a lifetime of the bike. There was a lot of innovation around the smart locks at the time and, you know, how you could track the mm. bikes and lock them. <laughs> and I mean, basic yeah. stuff today, right? Uh, but that was, you know, where some of the, you know, R&D was required. And I guess, you know, at, at Grab, you know, what, I was quite fortunate, you know, a, a lot of companies wanted to work with Grab because Grab had a, you know, regional uh, platform in Southeast Asia that it's like more challenging to penetrate as an outsider. And so I had, I guess, the unique privilege to engage with a number of leading, you know, micromobility operators all over the world, right when this industry was, you know, coming to age. You know, whether it's Ofo, Mobike, Hello Bike, you know, Blue Go Go and others in China, 
and then like bird lime spin and others in the u.s when you know the scooter sharing was was really starting off very broad array of strategies from these companies you know i remember mm. like mobike was known for like being like the apple of like bicycles right they had the most luxurious you know premium vehicles and like everyone like went gaga over them right uh but it was like bicycles that cost like, you know, some of them were like $1,000 for a bicycle, right? Not an electric bike, right? Yes. It's a regular bicycle. Yes. yes. Right? yes. <laughs> and uh, then Ofo had like the completely the opposite strategy where they're like, we're just going to have the cheapest bike that you can get out. It was like a $50 bike and, you know, it didn't last long. And it was actually a dumb bike initially. It didn't even have GPS. <laughs> really really cool right that i got to learn about these different approaches i think the one company that i admired the most at that point in time was you know the one that's now survived in china which is hello bike they were a late entrant into china, the chinese market actually there were like over 100 bike share companies right when they started like i think in 2017 or something or in 2016 and they realized that you know what the big cities you know, those are really crowded and irrational markets right now. And yes. given we're in an asset heavy business, right, we need to figure out how do we make a return on our investments. And, you know, that should be like the North Star. Forget about the vanity metrics, yeah. right? Let's look at, you know, return on our on our assets. And I mean, credit to them. I, I think their, their strategy has, you know, has succeeded. They, they're focused on tier two, tier three, tier four cities where you know, there wasn't so much competition. You can have more rational pricing, for example. You don't have to give rides away for free. Right? Uh, they focused on the, you know, TCO per day of the vehicle, right? So not just like the bomb, right? But, you know, the, the CapEx per day weighed against like the lifetime. And also like the ops efficiencies, right? So just like, you know, basics of, of like what drives the business you know, what are the key drivers? And I guess the, the rest worked out. I guess another really interesting insight in China and also why we were excited about it at Grab was, you know, micromobility being, I guess, a vertical that really drives transaction volumes on like mobile payments or on like yeah. platform ecosystems, right? Just looking at the volume and the reach of this vertical, I think that's what attracted and financial and you know tencent and meituan to really yeah. invest in these companies yeah. because it allowed them to really reach you know lower income segments tier two and tier three cities where maybe they didn't have the penetration yet and drive that sort of platform mm. engagement and platform loyalty and i think that was what sparked our interest with grab and grab wheels as well it's funny you say all that so the founder of mobike actually lives in wellington in new zealand and I've met her and I am still aiming to get her on the podcast because I feel like she's, when I've talked to her about it, she's just like, there is a story to tell there, but uh, you know, it's, it's hers to tell. One of the things that she's told me is like being as the head of a group, like we sold tomato and we had a great exit, but like they just wanted to flood it with capital because that, you know, they lost complete, you know, they really felt like they uh, lost a lot of the control there because it just was like, wasn't about them anymore. It was about these guys saying, this is merely a mechanism for us to be able to build mobile wallet. Like that's our metric. We're driving mobile wallet use. 
and you've got a bike system that is now producing heaps of waste bikes but we don't really care because that's you know that's not the metric that we care about yeah i hope I, one day i can tell that story with her it's an amazing story but yeah it's crazy completely irrational times and i imagine just super fascinating for you guys did you end up you know like obviously grab you know we, we talk a lot about mobility as a service on this on the show and do you think that that's actually played out for grab because I know that like you've looked at other things, right? Like that's where there was a lot of competition from Gojek, from Indo around that as well. Like moving into the lower end of the market where you can do smaller, more consumable rides or deliveries or whatever. Like that's clearly where Grab has gone as well, right? Do you think micromobility still has potential in that regard in Asia or just obviously not in the, you know, not in the Chinese bike share model? For sure. My view here is actually market agnostic. I think fundamentally what people care about in mobility is affordability, convenience, and experience. And for short distance, single passenger rides, you know, uh, micromobility is superior on all three dimensions, right? It's quicker, it's uh, more affordable, and it's more fun. There's definitely a, an opportunity, but I think like each market has its own challenges, right? Southeast Asia, of course, a massive population, over 600 million people but primarily emerging markets, you know, where there's lower spending power, there's infrastructure gaps, lower payment penetration, maybe theft and vandalism, right? And, and this was actually one of the reasons why I chose to leave Grab and, you know, Grab Micromobility and move back to the Middle East. Because, yeah, so th- let's, yes. let's go there, because you started in the Middle East, right? Did you grow up in Dubai? I went to high school in Dubai. I spent 12 years here now. A uh, daughter was born here, so it's home, effectively. Yep. Right. But I guess seeing the, the bicycle graveyard in China really hit home that, you know, it really comes down to performance. If you're raising a lot of capital and deploying it at high velocity, right, very quickly, you know, the bell tolls and you need to show the numbers. And so one important aspect is market selection. Every market is not equal, right? There are richer markets and, you know, more emerging markets. And so that's one piece that I liked about the Middle East, right, uh, is, you know, high spending power. And actually what's unique here is we also have a relatively affordable uh, labor costs, which you don't see in other uh, rich economies. And of course, like OPEX is the major cost driver in our business. And then I guess there's also lower competitive intensity, partially, I, I would say, due to misperception of the opportunity, the profit pool here and uh, partially due to the complexity of operating in this region, right? Legal structures are very cumbersome, many small countries, very relationship driven. You really need to have that seniority on the ground. You can't just parachute a fresh Ivy League grad and tell them to launch a market. Are you are you critiquing the Uber model? <laughs> uh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is fascinating. I mean, for folks who listen to the show, but yeah, I used to live in Qatar in 2012 to 2015. So it was it was that period as well of when the kind of the Ivy Leagues were from Uber were being dropped into the country and went through very substantial growing pains of like having the yeah, there, yeah, as you say, there's a lot of legal, the legal structures just make everything, it's incredibly bureaucratic in its own weird way. And I can yeah. only imagine what it's like. And and of course, you've got all those different markets, right? And everybody speaks slightly different language dialects, so you can't do standard comms across the region. So you have to think about it, how you're gonna do that. And Okay, so you ended up going back to Dubai. Was that the point at which you joined Cirque? How did that work? Yeah, so my co-founder, IQ, he used to lead engineering at Kareem, that's where we met and we, 
reconnected, like, let's try to start micromobility in the Middle East, right? And we had our own startup that actually merged with Cirque just when Cirque was starting. So, you know, I, I became, I guess, the Middle East CEO and IQ was uh, moved to Berlin as the group CTO. And uh, that was another wild journey. I think, you know, Europe had the same sort of, you know, e-scooter craze that we had seen in China with bike sharing. I mean, it's funny yeah. how like history rhymes. So it was like, you know, this growth at all costs mindset in Europe. Everyone's trying to land grab, get permits, get vehicles deployed. And, you know, so Cirque was one of those guys. And, you know, we launched in like a dozen countries in like less than a year in 40 cities. Mm-hmm. In the Middle East, I had learned my lesson in China and I was like, oh no, we got to be disciplined. Right? <laughs> and, and there weren't 15 companies knocking on doors, it was just us. So it yeah. took a lot more effort to really create, you could say the market acceptance, right? And we had our first breakthrough in Abu Dhabi, and the first licensed operator in the whole region, quickly proved the thesis. We had a you know, awesome business with great performance and, you know, expanded to a couple other countries and five cities. And, and then we were acquired by Bird about a, a bit more than a year and a half ago. I guess for, for Bird, I, I would say Europe was a big part of the focus. They had been lagging in those markets and, you know, with Cirque, they could expand their footprint quite quickly. And, and then, of course, the Middle East, we had a very nice business, but it was like a non-core market for them. I guess fast forwarding, the pandemic hit, right, and everything changed. Right? Especially, I mean, we work and then the pandemic, right, the whole investor appetite for like high burn companies had dissipated. And I guess with Bird, they had to recalibrate with an uncertain climate, uncertain future with, with the pandemic, you know, how long is it going to go, etc. And, you know, they decided to focus on their core, right, which was really the US market. And, you know, so they shut down a lot of the European markets, we were operating a Cirque and also all of the Middle East. And so right in the midst of all those headwinds, you know, with the 80% write down on Lyme and uh, <laughs> etc. In the midst of the summer in the Middle East, that's when we had our rebirth as Phoenix, hence the name, right? Yeah, 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 I love it, I love it. Oh, that's really, that's really cool. Okay, that, well, you'd mentioned the name, but I didn't quite realize the full context of that, but that's an awesome, awesome, great outcome for you guys and and that. Like, there's a couple of really interesting things about Phoenix, which is one, I heard about this, I mean, you know, I'd heard about it from you, obviously, but then I got a message from the Maneve Mobility team because they were like, oh yeah, we've invested in Phoenix. It's the first Israeli Arab tech investment. Was that correct? Or is it the first into mobility space? Was that how it was contextualized? Yeah, quick intro on Phoenix. We are vertically integrated mobility and deliveries platform focused on the greater Middle East yeah. region. We were fortunate after the Abraham Accords, we were the first UAE-based tech startup to receive a venture investment from an Israel-based VC, Maneve Mobility, so a small piece of history there. And for us, it was especially exciting because Maneve is you know, one of the top mobility venture funds in the world, and you know, we had access to that sort of expertise. We've been operating, I guess, since last November, so it's been about 10 months now. Today, we are active in five countries and 13 cities. We primarily the GCC and we recently expanded into Turkey as well through acquisition. We're in UAE, Qatar, Bahrain, Saudi and Turkey. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's quite a interesting, like 
think about it and you go there's a very big difference in the operating constraints in all of those different countries so it's not just sort of like a hey we're just flying into another city it's you know yeah operating in all of those countries in and of themselves this must be some quite tricky logistics so did you take the existing infrastructure and assets and things like that from the circuit deal like were you able to get the scooters and stuff and just repurpose them or did you go for a whole new operating company and a whole new way of doing things completely new company a lot of talent joined us at phoenix so we had you know already gone through the learning curve you know operational experience at scale of course all the relationships that we have cultivated are with the management team but it's a standalone Nico, yeah, we're very excited about, about the progress we've made so far. Awesome. When you say you're in those countries and the number of cities that you're in, how does it work in those countries? So I think, for example, like I hear about UAE, is it the same as an American city or a European city? You know, there's like, you go to the regulated, you say, hey, we want to operate in this city. You've got 400, you get a cap of 400. You have to do it like that. Or is it, are there different operating constraints around how you operate in those places? Yeah, it's a bit of discovery, to be honest. I guess to familiarize people with the region, of course, you know, many countries, the GCC is six countries, right? Uh, you have transport ministries in each of those, but even you know, the cities oftentimes have their own transport agencies and municipalities. And then there's also a lot of communities which are managed by Seoul real estate developers, right? Uh, because there's been a lot of construction over the last 20 years and there are these massive mixed-use communities that, you know, developers are, I guess, the gatekeepers on. So you need to kind of cut across all of those different layers. Most of the time, like, we're the first company to really broach this topic with the partners. So there's education, there's evangelism. We have to identify, you know, who are the main stakeholders who you know, can make this happen. Mm. What's nice about micromobility is it actually, as opposed to ride hailing, micromobility actually dovetails quite neatly with a lot of like urban planning and transport planning objectives, right? About uh, increasing access to public transit, right? About reducing congestion, reducing pollution, uh, overall about improving quality of living, about driving economic activity, growing the economy and it's sustainable so big picture i think there's more alignment or there's clear alignment on, on what we're doing and how we can support what these cities are doing in their 10-year 20-year visions but then yeah small picture we have to walk through the details of like okay these are the best practices this is where we would recommend you know kind of testing the service here's like how a pilot program could be run these are what the requirements should be. And then let's use, I guess, the experience from the pilot to drive longer form policies. That's typically the framework that we've used to allow us to test the service. You know, every city is different. Some cities are now getting into the, the permit framework, like Dubai did that, you know, for the past year, for example, where they had a tender and you know, many companies applied and, you know, they selected a few companies with a cap and it might be more familiar to, you know, some of the, the other markets around the world. And so with something like Dubai, because I mean, anybody who's been to Dubai will know that it's sort of like, like it's hard to go to Dubai, you know, you kind of there's a it's a long big strip mall with amazing big buildings and some but it's not like a place that you'd go and say oh yeah naturally like that's where you'd go and do micromobility in in dubai so how does that work yeah so my view on on this is 
Actually, the minimum viable environment for micromobility is not a mega city, right? Because these trips are not, you know, 10, 20 kilometers in length. They're like one, mm-hmm. two kilometers in length, right? So it's actually a neighborhood where is what you need of a few thousand people and a few different sort of use cases within that neighborhood. And so a big city will have many of those minimum viable environments where infrastructure is conducive, there's a use case, there's the permissions, etc. Smaller cities also will have those MVEs, if I can call them, but they'll have less of them, mm-hmm. right? So like, for example, we also operate in Russell Kema, which is a smaller emirate, smaller city mm-hmm. state of like 400,000 people. We're also operating in Fujairah, which is 200,000 people, and it's a very viable business, right? So when I look at Dubai, yes, we're not going to replace all transportation needs across the whole city because it's spread out like many small communities. But like there are pockets for sure where you know micromobility is very viable and will continue to expand as you know the use of city space is reallocated over time as we we get more evidence to to the city right and and, and that's a similar yeah. mindset by the way that you know like when we look at Riyadh for example right, where we're also operating right and people are like oh where are you going to do use this in Riyadh you know so many places where the infrastructure doesn't work and I'm like yeah you're right right but there are pockets where it does work and we can start solving customer needs today and with that evidence you know we can make it work in other places cool so yeah like that makes a lot of sense to me and i think as well my understanding of middle eastern cities is that they're very heavily car dependent because there's a huge amount of the city that is you know if you if you're dealing with 120 degree fahrenheit or 50 degree celsius heat during the summer you do not want to be necessarily like having a walk and so they've built all these amazing metro systems but then the challenge is is that like they're very limited in their catchment sizes on either side, right? Because it's like, yeah, you kind of hop off this. I remember going to Dubai in the middle of the summer and like I almost got heat stroke walking from the one station to a small little shop thing just at the end of it. But if you can all of a sudden say, hey, we don't need to necessarily have those folks walk because we can provide them with vehicles at the end of that trip and then all of a sudden the catchment area increases by an order of two or three then I can imagine the metros being very excited about those those sort of options, you know. Oh, for sure. I, I guess three things I want to highlight. Like one is there's massive investment in transport infrastructure in the Gulf. So we talked about like metro lines, for example. Yes, Dubai has one. They've been running for over 10 years now, I think 12 years. Riyadh has built a massive metro system. It's largest in the region. Doha has built one ahead of the World Cup next year. And most other major cities have announced, you know, metro projects. And so this is a natural Mm. complement to it, like you shared. I think another interesting fact about the Gulf is when you look at the demographics, it's actually primarily uh, urban populace. Most of the people are living in cities and they're very young too. The age mix is, you know, primarily millennials and Gen Z. Relative to like the U.S., you know, although they're both car-centric markets, I mean, the U.S. is actually far more suburban and far older. So if we looked at urban mm. young population, right, the Gulf is almost 75% of what you see in the US. It's not as large as Europe, but it's actually not that far. <laughs> you know, There's only 60 million people here. That, yeah. that mix is not that far from the US. Uh, the second uh, point I wanted to mention is we're also active in Turkey. And Turkey is actually a really interesting market we're very excited about, right? Over 80 million people. And the government has just nationalized shared e-scooter regulations 
right, across the whole country in quite a... Pro- no way! Yes. Oh, fascinating. Yes, right, in quite a progressive manner. They basically looked at the per capita requirement. Right. For every 200 people, there will be one shared e-scooter on a city-by-city basis. So when we look at Istanbul, over 15 million people, there is a theoretical quota of 75,000 vehicles. That would make it like one of the largest, if not the largest, operating market in the world, wouldn't it? That's right. That's right. And so this was really the genesis for our acquisition of Palm into Turkey. And you know we're investing considerable resources now in expanding our business there. We've got a great local team that understands the market and, you know, we're fulfilling all of the local requirements from like a data residency standpoint, etc. But like big picture, I mean, this is also a region that is our country that's very urban, 75% urban. There's actually over 20 cities with a million plus people. It's also demographically skewing young, right? Most of the populace is under 30. And it is a multimodal market. There's very high usage of public transit. There's lower car ownership. There's dreadful traffic in Istanbul, you know, burning platform and, and perfect recipe for micromobility. Like we're seeing tremendous adoption on our vehicles there that we're scaling up and we're, we're very excited for it. You know, growing that business but just wanted to highlight i mean all, all, all of the portfolio is not equal right i didn't know those stats and i didn't know about istanbul as a market and i think the big one that everyone talks about is paris i think the the one really exciting find was seoul south korea is actually yes it's like the paris of the east it's massive but i think even that's not like i don't even think that's seventy five thousand in terms of actual vehicles on the road so yeah, incredibly exciting. And, the, and for Istanbul, are they looking at doing a nationalized tender process or are they, how are they thinking about allocating that 75,000 cap? Yes, so it's already been in, in progress. The, I guess the framework of the national legislation is uh, you first need to obtain a license from the Ministry of Transport, right? And there's certain requirements you need to fulfill to obtain that license. And then once you have the license, you can apply for a quota in any city that you would like to operate in and like basically uh, districts within those cities. And uh, the quota is then allocated amongst the companies who have shown interest for each of those districts. Right. So it, currently it's actually supply constraint, not demand constraint. There are not 75,000 vehicles in Istanbul today. Right? There's a lot less than that. but. You know, there's an opportunity for a lot more vehicles and beyond Istanbul as well. We're actually the first international operator in Turkey, but we are also, you know, investing to be as local as we can be, right? Uh, Localizing our tech. Uh, We're developing an R&D center there. Uh, We see a scope for manufacturing and exporting from Turkey to our markets. It's much closer. Turns out uh, these days, you know, freight, costs are also a lot higher than they used to be (laughs) yes yeah 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 totally that's fascinating i was actually want to go to the hardware question because i always ask operators you know what have you done with hardware and a bunch of them have said you know you've done custom versions and all that sort of stuff how have you thought about that journey i mean clearly the thing i really love about your story is that it's you are a lot more pragmatic you strike me as a lot more pragmatic you've had to be given your markets and the way that you've had to operate it and things can I guess that you probably just get off the shelf scooters with some level of small customization? Would that be accurate? To a degree. So we don't do mm. the development ourselves, right? We provide design inputs mm-hmm. and we have you know strategic exclusive relationship in our region with our supply partner. 
I would say that you know our vehicles are unique in our market and no one else has you know the look and feel of the vehicles some of the features like you know for example our scooters are the first in the world with an inbuilt hand sanitizer which we developed you know because of the pandemic we also have like a rear wheel shield for long loose clothing like an abaya or dish dasher mm. so that's like some mm. of the localizations there's some other new features that are coming in the next version right but i guess one other step back is you know we're looking at providing a portfolio of micro mobility products and by products we mean form factors and business models so yes we have mm-hmm. shared e-scooters we really like it you know we're growing it we also have subscription private e-scooters just like auto consumption you know there is a portion that is used on like ride hailing and taxis but like a lot of it is private consumption because you know if i'm going to use it every day right maybe i don't want to spend 3 4 a trip right i'm like hey it's cheaper for me to buy one right <laughs> if i'm yes. going to use it every day on a, on a functional first basis and so with our subscription business we are offering a, we have a unique proposition relative to retail when you buy a scooter today it's quite different from buying a car right maybe i'm spending you know $800 to buy the scooter oftentimes i don't know you know the company that manufactured it they may not be like clear standards it could have a low quality battery it could malfunction you know after a month or two months and then I'm, i'm out of luck there's no service contract and also if i get into an accident there's no insurance readily available right compare that to buying a car right you don't pay for it up front you pay it on installments there's already some standards the car needs to meet in many cases you have a service contract with the manufacturer and you get insurance if you have any accidents. So that's kind of what we're mirroring with what we call My Phoenix, where now for like $50 a month, you get your own scooter, we deliver it to your house same day and uh, you use it as much as you want, no commitment. If you find that hey, scooter is mm. not for me or hey, I want to buy a scooter or hey, I want to go on holiday, right? You can pause it and return it anytime and you get the added benefits of like free maintenance, free insurance and smart app, right? It's a smart scooter. Uh, so th- we found that offering choice we're able to actually reach a lot more pockets of the market than if we just stuck with one product being shared e-scooters because like we talk about the regulatory friction right getting permits getting where can you operate the shared e-scooter there's a quota we're also trying to drive performance is pricing piece to it right it doesn't reach everyone everywhere at yes. their level of affordability and we will be announcing some other products shortly as we continue to bring this choice to really address the price points use cases different environments right not everywhere is there like perfect bike lane infrastructure for example yeah i have open questions about infrastructure you know it's awesome to hear about istanbul for example yep. but i actually have no idea do they have any you know one of the things that i know from having lived in the middle east is that like bike lanes are not a kind of core part of what they do when they do traffic engineering it's sort of a very thought on like very tacked on afterthought aspect of when folks are building and so so it's not a natural part of the kind of built environment and at least in the gcc and the the, the golf cooperation countries so how does that impact on how you think about it i mean i take it from what you're saying minimum viable environments that's where you'd want to go and deploy and there are more places that would be more conducive to those being ridden I yeah. guess. Yeah. So what we're solving for is is it safe to ride? Like ideally you have the the protected buffered bike lane and that's like the safest place to ride. And those bike lanes are getting built in cities right over time. Right? There's more 
acceptance that you know this is what's needed in a modern city but it's not the only place where you can ride safely a lot of our use is actually in the gulf on sidewalks because the sidewalks are underutilized right and so that's available pavement or you can look at low speed low traffic neighborhoods right low speed roads where you can also ride very safely and comfortably so there's different ways to like approach the problem we always strive for like what's ideal but let's use what we've got and prove it and then you know we can give urban planners the courage to take space away from cars <laughs> and reallocate it yes. for, for yeah. micromobility. Totally, totally. And how are things in Istanbul? Is it similar? I mean, I actually have no idea what the city's like in terms of cycling infrastructure. Yeah, so most of the riding is on the roads. Like I shared, I mean, there's already a lot of like multimodal travel and you know, people are very comfortable with it. Even people driving are comfortable with seeing people riding scooters. And of course, I mean, Istanbul is a very hilly city too. So that has its own dynamics from a vehicle requirement standpoint. You need to make sure you could go up that slope, not just go down. The question is also, as you say, you're going into multimodal. Yes, you're in scooters. I assume e-bikes are coming. I assume e-mopeds would also be on the table for you. Yeah, I think those are all reasonable guesses. I mean, we're seeing like a lot of permutations of like you know form factors it's a bit blurry you know what is a moped what is an e-bike what is a scooter and even pods or micro evs can fit in that spectrum so we're looking at all at all of them and looking at how can we work with cities to bring this choice to the market our governing mindset is more about like you know what is the speed of the vehicle is it a high speed vehicle or a low speed vehicle with like a maximum mass ideally like low speed vehicles you know, we should be a little more flexible on whether it's a scooter or e-bike or low-speed moped or, or something else, as opposed to having like a very specific requirement, you know, that this infrastructure is just for scooters, and this infrastructure is just for e-bikes, and this parking space is, yes. it, it, it's too restrictive when we don't know like how, how the market is going to be evolving. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Speaking of pods, anything that you see on the horizon that you get excited about? I mean, it's one of these things because, you know, it struck me being in, you know, looking at the, the kind of operating environments you're in where you've got highly, you know, it's very hot in the summers, obviously no rain. So you're not that fussed about that part of the weather, but being able to provide a climate controlled pod that you could move, move around the city in. Yeah, it makes sense. It gives choice to the customers, those who are concerned about, I mean, it's like weather protection and maybe you can go on higher speed roads with cars, you know, where the infrastructure is there. I think there's a lot of potential for pods. And I, I think what's beautiful is once you integrate car sharing or micro EV sharing or pods or whatever with micro mobility, right? now you have the multimodal trips, right? Where the scooter can be the first last mile to the pod. You don't need the same density, right? This is one of the challenges with car sharing is like cars are expensive. They take a lot of space. I mean, are you going to have as mm. many car shared cars as mm. shared scooters? Right? I mean, it doesn't make sense. You need to invert the transport pyramid, right? And we should have maximum micromobility and minimum cars, right? And connect to the cars with, with scooters. That's how we think about it. By the way, one, one other point I wanted to touch on when we think about our portfolio, which is a bit unique. So not just like subscription and shared passenger mobility, but now we've also gotten into ultra fast deliveries. Uh, we've launched this service in Abu Dhabi, we call it F10, um, or Phoenix 10, where we get you convenience groceries in 10 minutes. Of course, this has been another craze in Europe, especially, and 
I'm a bit concerned about the hype cycle, <laughs> having a repeat of, of bike sharing and scooters, right? Where they're growing at all costs and then you know, there'll be the reckoning. I guess what we feel is unique about how we're building our business in ultra-fast deliveries is we're doing it with an orthogonal business of shared micromobility. So we have mm-hmm. a lot of synergies with you know, the sunk costs of our, of our micromobility business that allows us to offer you know, the, the deliveries you know, at a far greater cost efficiency. And so you think about it, like the three main costs here are you know, the marketing costs, the delivery costs, and the real estate costs. And we, we've got synergies in all mm-hmm. three of them. So we talk about how like scooters or micromobility are the ideal customer acquisition engine. Right? It's free out-of-home advertising. You don't have to do paid marketing for scooters. People just see it and they download your app and they transact and they're activated. Right? Now we can cross-sell them to groceries. Yes. We're not spending on all these like billboards and <laughs> moving trucks and whatever that all these other companies are doing. The delivery cost is also, there's a lot of synergies because we already own the vehicles that we use. Ideal yeah. vehicle for short distance, small package, is micro the e-bike or an e-scooter, right? We own those, sunk costs, we yep. ought to source and maintain them cost effectively. And even the workforce, which is actually the biggest cost for micromobility, right, is the labor. So you're taking, for example, in like Dubai, lots of towers and you can go, hey, from the supermarket downstairs, we can deliver the stuff to your house rather than you necessarily having to come down and do that. Is that, is that the idea when you do F10? Well, actually we have our own dark stores, which are also charging centers. And because we use swappable batteries and these are distributed around the city. So we share the real estate, right? Of course, we stock our own groceries now, right? Uh, but it's optimal for that demand pool, right? It's a limited skew mix. And then we use the same team who are employed by Phoenix and actually shareholders in Phoenix to you know, do deliveries in peak hours and swap batteries in off-peak hours. So we're really maximizing all of our fixed costs, right? To offer a new distinctive offering to our customers and we're the first company doing this in the Gulf and actually mm. strengthening our mobility business in effect because now uh, our fixed costs are spread out over more transactions so more operational leverage also our service is a little stickier because people are buying more things from us right we can do multi-vertical bundles like you know with every grocery delivery you get a free mobility ride for example so we really like that sort of platform element of what we're building yeah, awesome. You said there were three aspects. So there's marketing, there's ops cost, and Real there estate. was... Right there. Oh, right. And that was the... Right. Okay, catch you. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. That's really fascinating. You know, like you're the first operator that I've talked to who's doing that in a meaningful way. You know, I think that w- there was early early discussions about, oh, well, we can just, you know, repurpose our, our scooters to delivery riders, but actually it didn't really work. You know, that was a sort of, I think a wishful thinking rather than necessarily an actually materially useful thing. Look, this has been so fascinating. I mean, I love chatting to you because I feel like as is obvious for, I hope everybody who's listening, you've been around for a long time. You clearly know the space and you're thinking about it. What is the stuff that you're most excited about as you go forward? It feels to me like we're still super early, even though there's obviously some interesting traction that we're now getting. Where's your kind of vision of where we'll be in five, five or 10 years? God knows. Who knows? <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, look, clearly there's a snowball effect that's happening right now, right? And if we like zoom out and look at like where was this industry five years ago? Where was it three years ago? Where is it today? I think globally it's come a long way. You know, companies are doing it 
in a profitable way as well, which most high growth industries, you know, don't achieve, right? So I think there's a lot to be excited about from an industry standpoint. I think the the features of the vehicles, you know, keep improving. There's more sensors getting equipped on them. We're going to have more precision on, you know, where they're riding and, you know, enforcing those rules, which I think will drive more acceptance and adoption by cities. There may be other value creation opportunities that come out of having micro-mobility vehicles operating in a city. We talk about, you know, deliveries, we talk about customer acquisition and payments. I think there's a big data opportunity as well that, you know, may start to materialize in the coming coming years. It's very exciting, mm-hmm. both as an industry player, but also as a consumer and as a, you know, urban dweller to see, you know, life getting better. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's awesome. I'm really excited. I hope that we can have you on in a couple of years. Uh, hopefully not even that long, but you know, just to talk about where things have got to. I mean, I think I'm certainly going to be watching Istanbul and Turkey going forward. I mean, that's one that hasn't been on my radar. And just generally, I think that the Middle East is really interesting. Just out of curiosity, do you know if there's an e-scooter championship that's going to be coming to you in the Middle East yet? I've heard about an e-scooter championship. I've not followed it closely. Yeah, they're the racing scooters. They go up to like 100 kilometers an hour and all that sort of stuff. I feel like Middle East would be one of those places that would do, you know, they're all into the adrenaline sports. So this would be, we'll work out how to get one to you guys in the Middle East and you guys can sponsor it or something like that. We'll we'll make it. Uh, it Sounds exciting. Already, I mean, we have experience working with F1. So why not work with e-scooter championship too? I think that would be really cool. Totally. Awesome. All right. Hey, well, thank you so much. And yeah, looking forward to having you on soon. Thanks so much for giving us a chance to share our story. Really appreciate it.